So hello, everybody. Welcome to Transformation and Transcendence Roundtable Podcast. Again, here today is Ben Bennett Carpenter, Life Coach. Hey, everybody. Uh, Farid Alazabah, a Life Coach and Psychotherapist. Hello, everyone. And Leah Dickinson, a Life Coach and Psychotherapist. Hey, everyone. So welcome. Uh, today I thought I'd talk about a fundamental concept that I've been sort of researching in more spiritual literature, primarily from the guide lectures, uh, but uh, I think it's lecture 232, identification, being values. So the idea is we have two fundamental value orientations to life. And if you think about it as I begin to talk, you'll begin to see how this applies to each of us in turn. So one is the level of appearance, appearance values. It's how we do things to impress other people, how we're seen in the eyes of others, uh, to raise our, you know, our value in their eyes. In some sense, it's other-oriented, you know, how it's going to play, how it's going to come off. In other words, to, to make us look better, which is hence appearances. The other is our being values, which are related to the higher self, the core self, to love, to the idea of giving for the sake of something true and meaningful and helpful in and of itself, not how it looks, what it gets you on the outside in terms of fame or fortune or power, which may be in the interest of your vanity uh, and self-serving uh, and that kind of thing. So one is for the thing in itself, in terms of love, caring, being for other people, giving to the planet, giving to others, as well as ourselves in the process. Because as we know, when we give to others, we give back to ourselves. But it is not other-oriented. We're, we're, we're focused on how other people see us and how we appear, but how we are, and then everything else follows. You know, what you get in return, we're not even sure. And it's not necessarily that they esteem us or value us. But we're giving them something, and we feel the joy, or the, uh, you know, the pleasure of caring for life for other people, that kind of thing. So one's inner-oriented in the self, the higher self. One's outer-oriented in terms of egoism, vanity, pride, that kind of thing. Now, many things we do have a com complicated admixture of both. But if we focus on this in life and how we're being in terms of these different values, how we're orienting ourselves, we can begin to see a difference. We can begin to discern as we move forward in life the difference between the two. So not only is one, you know, for God's purpose, for life purpose, for this purpose of goodness and love, and the other for the purpose of vanity and, you know, what we get in terms of esteem for others, other problems accrue from the different orientations. If we are other-oriented in, in how we appear to others is the most important thing, and what we do is for the sake of how it looks, how it shows, that kind of thing. You can see, if, you're, if you look into the psychology of it, how doing things for the sake of others, I mean, for the appearance value to, for others, gets you off-center. It gets you identified with the vision of others, with their, as Farid likes to say in, in uh, uh, 
uh, you know, deference to Lacan, to their gaze at us, right? You know, to their what they think of us. So our identity is fixed in their eyes and their point of view and where they're coming from, you know, how they like us or don't like us or view us or esteem us or not. So we're all we're, we're always decentering ourselves. And what happens in cases like that, we betray ourselves. If we're stuck on that, we begin to uh, betray ourselves for that. And we lose track of ourselves. We lose track of what we really want, what we really desire, what we really feel is good about uh, ourselves in life, and what the truth is of the moment in terms of what we're trying to do for the sake of pleasing and appearance. And this has dire consequences as an orientation. You know, we're, again, we, we don't know what we want some of the time because we're thinking, and even unconsciously, how does this play? How does this work for other people? Rather than, is this good? Is this fulfilling? Is this enjoyable? Is this helpful? Is this constructive? No. What are they going to think? Or how are they going to look at it? Are they going to smile at us? You see, so we're off-centered. And it's two dramatically different orientations. Another element to being other-oriented is that when we uh, we fail to get their esteem when we're other-oriented and we're living for appearance values, it's like a death experience when we don't get it because our identity is through their gaze. And if they we lose their gaze, it's like a death experience. We're like that. It feels horrible. You know, we can't stand it because this is who we are. And if we're not there for them and they're not shining their uh, light on us through their gaze, then we're nothing. You know, we're like nothing. We're, we're either like horribly abject or we're just nothing. So in either case, it's really wounding and terrible. Different than if you're self-identified. And you do things and you live your life as best you can for the sake of being and truth, uh, love, constructiveness, goodness, that kind of thing. And just for the sake of what it is and not for how it appears. Now, if you get in a little conflict with somebody or they don't like what you say, it's okay. I mean, you might say, ouch, right? And nobody likes to be rejected or disliked. But it doesn't shake you. It doesn't rock you at your foundation. It doesn't feel like a death experience, you know? It feels like, ah, ouch, okay, all right. I can I can deal with it, you see? So fundamentally different orientations towards life. One is based in the higher self, in the core, and gets us back to identifying with that, with its principles and capacity for love and goodness and caring about the other as much as ourself when that's right, you know? And the other is just for egoism, for esteem from others, and this this uh, disorienting and this uh, disidentifying with our real self and their gaze, which is a, not a good proposition, right? And it's part of the ego's fate, and why we have death experience because we, uh, if we're, we believe that if we're not held in other people's eyes or esteemed or values. It's a death experience in itself. If we identify with our higher self and love and all that, when we die, actually, the big death, the physical death, we're identified with that. It's we don't we don't lose the same kind of sense of ego orientation because our orientation is with this value of love, and it makes a transcendence or the transition to uh, another state of being through death easier on us too. It's not quite so scary as it used to be because we're identified with that instead of the worldly values of appearance, you see? Okay. That's a lot. That's, a, you know, 
I always throw these things out. I know it's a lot for you guys to digest in a short time and talk about. Forgive me for that, but you know, here we go. So I'll stop there and let's let, let's start working it over for people. Well, this oh, go ahead. This really brings to mind a lot of things for me, um, especially when working with my own clients, um, Dr. Sollers. Because I oftentimes see clients working and, you know, over identifying with maybe what their parents have said or with over identifying with their independence of self, but like doing things to help other people and and saying things like, oh, I'm a helper, but they're they're doing it to take on like the responsibilities of others. And they're also doing it for to appease other people, too, and to feel good that they're that other people appreciate what they're doing versus appreciating and really truly knowing themselves and what it is that they like and like and i can see how this can dart out into so many areas so I, i'm going to try and like keep it narrow here but um yeah this i can see how this can greatly impact um people especially if you don't have a very clear sense of who you are and you don't know what you want out of life, then you're going to be basically throwing your eggs into thousands of other people's baskets and your basket's still going to be left empty. And you are you may not even be aware of it until it's pointed out yeah. to you. Yes, indeed. And, and a lot of times we're not. Well, we are partially... And you know what makes it more complicated is we do this to degrees. It's probably very few in, on the planet who are basically for being values like totally, you know, almost totally. And there's others who are almost totally for appearance values. And then there's a lot of us in between. And sorting that out and having the multiple kind of layers of some of it is for how it appears and some of it is for being values. And but you still want to focus on then what's really the truth and what should you go with, you know. And the other stuff, you just try to recognize and let go and go back to what's the truth, what's good, what's constructive, yeah, what's helpful, and focus on that rather than how it appears. But it is, it is tricky to ascertain, discern this when it's happening. You have to really put it, put it on your mind that, you know, when you're doing something, what are you doing it for? You have to ask yourself that question at least occasionally, you know, you have to go, what am I doing this for? Especially when you feel a sense of tension about something. Is this right? Is this good? You know, what am I doing it for? I think I think that's a that's a key. I I wanted to say um I feel that this distinction between appearance and being values also involves a kind of distinction between getting meaning from. And I would imagine that with appearance values, you kind of forfeit meaning making to the other, whereas for being values, the meaning of things is more within your own locus of control. And I think uh, Leah brings up a good example to illustrate that when she talks about people who, in her words, over-identify with the helper role. Because, for example, if somebody has done this kind of over-identification, and they drive someone to the airport, for example, and they don't get the kind of gratitude that for whatever reason they expected, I can imagine that if they were more on the appearance value side, 
um, they may be quite disappointed and they may feel, you know, well, why did I do this if the other person didn't give me the kind of respect and uh, thanks that I felt like I wanted? Uh, whereas someone with more being values would probably think to themselves, it was very fulfilling for me to help someone out in this way and uh, do a favor for somebody. And I think the way that meaning plays into that is the meaning of driving someone to the airport. If you're more appearance value, value oriented, it's okay. The meaning is it's an opportunity to get positive feedback or to be thanked or to have gratitude expressed to me. But if you're more in the being values, to use this example of, you know, the, the ride to the airport, then the meaning of it is more of it's a task that brings fulfillment. It's nice to help people. It's nice to be um, in service to other people, regardless of the kind of um, returns that we might get. Returns might be a nice bonus. It might be nice if someone expresses their gratitude, but just kind of feeling that it's intrinsically um, worthwhile to do so. Yeah. That's right. That's right. It's not so focused on how they're going to respond. It's focused on, is this a good thing to do? And do you feel like, you know, love and you want to do it? And then you do it. And then if you get uh, gratitude, that's good. That's, you know, we like gratitude. That's great. Uh, accepting the gratitude can be giving too, right? This is overcomes the, the duality between giving and receiving. Uh, but it's not so... Uh, the, it de-emphasizes, uh, you know, take, it moves you away from, you're doing this just for how they're going to respond, how it's going to appear. You know, it's, it's that kind of thing, uh, which I think you're hitting on. And you're, you're kind of talking from more of an existential point of view, which is fine. We have a lot of people who, who really relate to that frame of reference, so that's, that's good. So I guess my angle on this is... Uh, I've been studying, my current study focus right now is in like shame and shame-based identities, shame-oriented families. And that, this to me, I'm wondering what role shame and uh, plays in this sort of dynamic of being really concerned about how other people are viewing you as opposed to these being values, like how I feel internally regarding what I'm doing and how I'm being on my own. Yes. You want to answer your own question? I bet you, I think you have some ideas. Want to play, uh, with, want to play with it? Yeah. Uh, sure. Gosh. Okay. Um, <laughs> Well, I'm so new. I like, I'm like, I'm realizing I have my own shame work to do because I didn't like, it's just not talked about, you know, especially in shame based families. No one's talking about shame. Right. So, um, but, um, like, what I, I, the, the sense that I'm getting is that, okay, if you have really strong, like if you have really strong experiences and when you're a child of shame, then you can have like one of two more extreme directions that you can take to cope with that. One, you can do this gaze sort of thing where it's like, hey, now I'm going to be hyper-oriented towards other, other people's needs. I'm going to be hyper-oriented towards how other people are perceiving me. And then I'm going to build my identity and my actions and all these defenses that I have around that so that I can make sure to not feel shame because no one's going to direct that towards me. Absolutely. 
And then the other way I would think is that like block it all out. Like, I think that that's where I lean towards that. Like, I just don't care what other people think. Like, I really don't, even though I do, there's parts of me that really definitely do care how, like, but the majority of me is like, I really don't care. I'm just going to be me. I'm going to do what I do. And which like has served me really well in certain ways, but in other ways, it's really detrimental because it's actually useful to have that gaze, that orientation towards gaze of like, okay, this is how people are perceiving me. If you totally block that out, then you're actually missing out on a lot of valuable information. And um, like, well, I mean, feedback is great, but. And life experience, you know, you can put a kind of thin kind of cellophane veil between you and experience, you know, without even knowing. It's a different kind of defense, you know. Some people have a stone wall kind of thing. Other people have this translucent kind. It's there, but it, it doesn't touch me, you know, that kind of thing. And it's really, it's a defense, and it's really a counterphobic defense, right? Because you're so afraid, and you're so dependent on wanting them to like you again to make up for the shame. Or esteem you or value that in the pain that you've hurt been hurt with with the shame, you're going to distance yourself so you don't, but then you cut off, right? And it has it has negative effects too, right? You you miss life, you miss out on life. And even then you're you're really repressing and denying your need for other people's uh, you know, appreciating you and valuing you, right? So you've gone to another extreme as a counterphobic defense, which perhaps it has some value to it in terms of rather than being ingratiating. But again, you miss. I think you've identified things you start to miss in life, right? Yeah. And if you go too far, you get dead. It's deadness, right? It's deadening. And you have this kind of what we used to call schizoid withdrawal. You know, you just withdraw. it's a defense of being above it, you know, being above it all. And and really it keeps you out of life. And you try to you try to stay above the worldly winds and the troubles and but you missed, and you missed that, you know, and uh, and you've come here to be in this incarnation. I'm sure to be a, a relational, loving, giving person, right? Who feels these things, not somebody who lives on the mountaintop, right, and watches it go by underneath. To use some metaphors, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I can relate to most of what <laughs> everyone's been saying so far. And one of the things I think of. Now, Joshua, is that uh, it could also be uh, kind of both at the same time, um, which is something I could relate to, which is it you're like um, bifurcate uh, or splitting, you know, sort of like uh, when I'm dealing with um, parents, when I'm dealing with teachers, when I'm, I'm, I'm sort of thinking developmentally too, I guess, um, sort of growing up. But when I'm, when I'm, dealing with a public world, I'm in the um, meeting other people's needs, uh, trying to match up to other people's image. Um, and then you've got sort of like, and, and that's sort of dealing with one way of dealing with the shame is like, hey, I'm just gonna uh, try to match, like you were talking about Dr. Sellers, you know, I'm just trying to match uh, this image that other people have. But then at the same time, and it could be privately, then it's sort of like shameless, like that's it, like fuck shame, you know. Um, it's sort of like I don't care what other people think. I'll do what I'll do, and it it's, doesn't have any consequences because it's not with it's not with other people. So there's no blowback. Um, and so yeah, that's uh, uh, 
you got me thinking along those lines. Yeah, also something kind of comes to mind too from like the EMDR perspective. So yay, I'm throwing that in because I'm getting trained in it. Um, but like, I don't know. I feel like a sense of sadness as we're talking about this actually, just because it's so sad to envision like the earliest moments of a young person's life. So we're gonna also developmentally look at this for a second too where they experience something like a rejection from a parental figure, or they're shamed for thinking or doing something. Or a good example, I had a client who recently shared um, an example when they were really sick and how they felt shamed by their parent, not comforted in that time when they were feeling really vulnerable. And so then you have that event and you keep building on it and building on it and more and more events just like it, right? Like continue to occur. And so this, this poor young person starts to think, great, this is how I am. This is what I need to do to start protecting myself, to start making everybody else around me happy. So I need to build up a wall, a, a strong tower around me. I need to now go out of my way for other people and put aside and sacrifice all of my own personal needs for everybody else. And it's devastating to then grow up and be an adult and start to unpack this stuff. Excuse my French, crap. Okay. Um, and, and then, you know, start unpacking this with your client or, you know, to people that we're talking to right now, it's a lot for a person to go through when they're young. It's a lot for them to go through as they're journeying into adulthood. And it's a lot to continue to unpack as an adult. So it really has a huge developmental, um, belief, discrepancy and also damage to the sensations within the system of the body too. Like even with working with my clients, we're hitting stuff from childhood and they're telling me, I feel pain in the back of my head. That's like two years of age. Okay. They're telling me I have a burning sensation in my heart. I have, you know, pain and discomfort in my limbs. I mean, so we're talking about not just like the stuff on like a psychoanalytical, but also a body sensational level as well. Yeah, I think uh, that that sadness, um, I that I really connect to that, Aaliyah, that just the devastating sort of sadness that can come with that. And also partly because all of this in a way is rooted in good things, which are to to meet the needs of others or to I mean, it, there's a the basic uh, fundamental <laughs> dynamic. There might be that we we are we are trying to do what's good. We are trying to meet the need of well, what what does this parent need, or what does this older figure, or what do other people, our peers around us, need? I mean, it's all starts. Maybe it starts with a, just a natural, legitimate. Uh, need to meet other other people's needs in a social environment so um but then things go haywire <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah it well, becomes becomes the how it appears and how you appear to them that that ele becomes elevated in what you're trying to do and how it plays rather than maybe they don't care maybe they're not very appreciative what you're trying to meet a need anyway that's not how that goes this orientation appearance values goals for how it appears, you know, 
And sometimes it's how it plays, even when you're not maybe meeting their needs very much, but you're really oriented towards uh, are they going to think you are or that kind of thing, you know, like selling them bait and, bait and switch kind of stuff. Anyway, go ahead. If I, if I read. Yeah, so Ben, I'm glad that you brought up this idea of um, trying to identify what the positive origin all that is. And again, I think it reiterates that shame in and of itself is not a bad thing. Shame to me is a social mechanism that's used to regulate behaviors. I also see it on a spectrum where in a way, shame is the threat of exo communication. You have a community of people, you wanna regulate their behavior. Shame is that kind of lever that's like, okay, well, we're pushing you towards exo communication, you better stay in line. So in that context, I think the positive benign core of shame would be belongingness. A child wants to belong to their community. There are strong evolutionary reasons why this would be advantageous for the child to have that ne network of care and support. Shame and our reactions to shame are, I think, the result of our need for belongingness, wanting to belong to a group, and then confronting these parts of society that either, for a good reason or bad reason, shame us. Because again, there's good reasons for shame. There's a reason why the adjective shameless is actually a bad thing. We should really reflect on that. Like for all of the negative connotations we're attributing to shame, you would think shameless is a good thing. Shameless is a bad thing. It's good to have shame in certain contexts. But I think the way that this relates to appearance values is when you have a child, Leah, in the example that you brought up, who is having these very core experiences early on, I think what happens is they kind of develop this um, very strong, overactive social perception monitoring system where they're really concerned about how people are perceiving them. And from that place, they develop these appearance values simply as a way, as Dr. Saller said, to appease others, to make sure that others' perceptions is not going to evoke the same shame response that they once experienced as a child. But what I'd like to bring to the group's attention is this idea of like, this is a value that's rooted in fear. This is not a value that comes from the deepest part of yourself, from an authentic part of yourself, from maybe even a spiritually in touch part of yourself. This is something that comes from the fear of shame and the fear of negative emotion. And I'll posit it to you guys that a value that comes from a place of fear is actually no value at all. It's just a reactive response and something that we might value insofar as we give it a lot of attention. But I would make the claim that actually, it's not like in these cases, we're moving from appearance values to being values. We're moving from a facade, an artificial construction caused by the fear of anticipated shame into um, being values, being rooted in who we authentically are, who we can be. And um, Leah, I'm glad that you're that you're doing EDMR and, and or EMDR and, and studying that because I think this therapy space and coaching space can be a really rich opportunity for people to move away from that reactive fear-based appearance values and into a more sort of genuine, authentic, uh, spiritually connected uh, value set that they'll have for the rest of their lives. In in higher uh, in spiritual schools, as people advance, <clears throat> fear is considered uh, a fault. That's a funny thing. I mean, you don't want to, you don't want to shame people about their fear, <laughs> but uh, when you because fear suggests you're always running from something. And in higher spiritual schools, and in I think advanced psychology, you want people to develop 
for resilience and for the, you know resilience and kind of uh, uh, there's a word for it like accepting tolerance of uh, distress and that you want people to develop emotional diversity and radical acceptance of of uh, feelings as well as thoughts so that people can feel negative feelings and not be so terrified of them and accept them and use them as teachers and use them as guidance and use them as uh, you know signposts to point to things that you need to be done and the idea is that no experience comes your way as you advance that really in some way you haven't drawn to you and in some way even if it's very painful and you, your conscious personality doesn't want it there's something your unconscious personality is trying to get from that to advance itself even if it's a even if it's a, a very difficult fate uh, but you're still trying to get something from that so nothing comes your way that you don't really need or want at some level of your personality to become more loving more kind more generous more fulfilled more uh, self-realized that makes sense so when instead of running from fear running from difficult things running from pain not that you want to run into it and, and say oh i don't want to do that no but when it comes you breathe you try to accept it you try to feel it and you try to move with it and learn from it and move through it that way so then at a certain point when pain comes, the idea is already the anticipation of the uh, of the expansion that occurs after you accept it and move with it and learn from it is already a sort of detoxifying the painful, difficult experience, and you begin to uh, merge pleasure and pain in one experience in the positive way, not in the masochistic way, but in the expansive, liberating way that you want to do when you're looking for self-realization, uh, transcendence, that kind of thing. So uh, did I go too far with that one? I don't know. But, uh, you know, the acceptance, that the trying to not run in fear, but accept whatever comes our way, even if it's difficult to breathe and lean into it a little bit and feel it and use it for your benefit, that's what you shoot for. And that's not fear. So fear is something... You want to be able to, as you move through life, uh, not run to all the time and not run from things in fear. You want to begin to detoxify that. And as you do, uh, it happens less. You know, life becomes less threatening. And you also don't have the negative effects of projecting, you know, you know you're forcing to run away from things out and causing more conflict and causing reverberations back to you that are negativistic, which does create more pain in your life. Yeah, I can definitely agree with that, Dr. Sollers, um, from like a, the higher stance point, because I've noticed even through my own work as a therapist working on myself, that the more I get past some of the, excuse my cat, <laughs> the reactive, like the reactive nature of my fears, and I start being able to move and make more progress and do the scary things, uh, the more I feel empowered, the more I feel free. And, um, I, and that's a lot of what I work with my own clients on too, is, hey, you know, I, I understand that we're scared and stuff of things, but like, just like I work with little kids, I'll say we can do the scary things uh, because it's true. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy, right? And it doesn't mean that we're not going to run into things at times that are really scary that we might need some assistance with, but it's learning how to get to a point where, um, 
we're able to start feeling less of that reactive nature and also not putting so much into the things that we're afraid of. And I know because I've done it too, where I'll work myself up with something and I'll keep talking about how scary it is. And I've been even called out on it. Like, yeah, I think you might be making this even bigger than it already was. And I go, yeah, yeah, I was. <laughs> and like, you can even see our, cl our clients, they'll tell you, hey, is it shame-based? Hey, is it something else? Just by their reaction. So if they go like this, it's like, yeah, they're being themselves up, right? Um, kind of like how I just demonstrated a couple seconds ago. <laughs> but it's just it's stuff to be paying attention to. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and one, uh, one thing with fear that I always come back to, it, it seems... It seems difficult for me to sort it all out. <laughs> I mean, because one thing I think of is um, if there's a, a like we've you've, we've used the example before. If there's a lion running towards you, you know, about to devour you. I mean, this, so there's there's it, these legitimate, you might say, immediate existential, not just threats, but like real fear that that you know. A lot of times, I think we would say we legitimately need to feel it's natural to feel that fear. It's um, freed several times over our sessions. It brings up evolutionary psychology. I mean, it's built into our evolutionary psychology and biology uh, to respond to those situations. Uh, why? Because, um, I mean, not to get too far into it, but some no, of our ancestors, <laughs> well, some of our ancestors before that, that didn't have that impulse don't exist anymore. <laughs> you know, we're, you know, and they didn't have offspring because uh, they, didn't survive the lion attack or whatever it is, you know? Um, so, I mean, so there's that really functional, natural, you know, so I think of also like a child who's in a, uh, a certain situation and they feel fear and it's natural and so on, then they definitely should respond to that. Um, that's a natural impulse that they should definitely pay attention to and definitely respond to. But having said all that, I mean, then we get back over to well, which types of fears are we talking about? And and to me, I, in a way, I feel like we're getting back around to like the appearance versus being thing. Because, I mean, if I speak for myself, I mean, I have all these quote unquote fears. They appear fearful. There's no lion coming, like yeah. like you said, Dr. Sutton. No lion. <laughs> There's no lion. I have a lion in my head coming. Um, it appears to be a fearful or, you know, say it's, Leah, you're mentioning clients, you know it 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 appears it seems to be very terrifying and that's not to uh, minimize because i've been in that i'm in that situation too it appears to be very fearful um but then what is it really and then i mean i guess that's what i'm kind of trying to work from the the back up to i feel like if i if i'm doing this kind of work brainstorming myself here i kind of like feel like I'm just getting up to the starting point where you started, Dr. Sellers. It's like, it's like, okay, all right, now, now I'm ready to, and I could even say like, you know, if certain people are a certain state of, um, in life or in being where they, I mean, this is me just imagining something now, but, um, there actually is a line coming and a person's at a certain point in their life and they show no fear. I mean, it, who knows? It could be a lion trainer or something. I don't know, <laughs> but um, but they show no fear. And I mean, on the one hand, they they get mauled, 
or on the other hand, they the lion like I don't know I don't know lion biology but the lion detects that they're you know not fearful and so they you know lay down peacefully you know I don't know I'm fantasizing but but in my interpretation of what you're saying Dr. Sellers at a certain point maybe a certain person might just be uh um peaceful about either one of those options I may be devoured by the lion I may, the lion may lay down with me. I'm at a point in my life where I feel no fear either, either way of that. Um, but that's one of my brainstorm there. <laughs> but, uh, well, it may be the case. I mean, I don't know. Most people would run, even advanced people would run from the lion. But you look at Socrates. He took the hemlock. He wasn't afraid, you know, and he felt it was the right thing to do. So the, it, it, maybe it's not a lion, but it's very, it's a similar kind of thing. And that, you know, it's your demise. Your skin's in the skin's on the line, and he wasn't afraid of that. I do think that can happen, uh, you know. But as we evolve, I think uh, you have less of these conflicts, and uh, it ha is more psychological. Now, I don't know; you may not believe that, uh, but it makes me think of the uh, the parable in the Bible. It's Daniel in the lion's den, right? The, the lion speaking of lions, right? The, the lion was, ah, oh, he's friendly to the lion. You know, the lion and the lamb will lay down together. See, I think what, that's a metaphor for the fact that this can be transcended. And the lion doesn't appear at some stage of your evolution, you know? If it would, you wouldn't care that much or you'd find a way to handle it or you'd use your ego as best you can. And if it couldn't, you would surrender to it. That's And then you'd pass up. But I do think it doesn't appear so much as you move along, which means... The, the violence appears less and less in your life as you live from a state of less fear and less anger as reactivity you don't create and have come back to you negative circumstances so frequently yeah so often it happens less and less as you move through life and through as you move this way and you can see it some people are in this paranoid position they uh, and they, they have there a lot of anger and fury deep down. They they put themselves in all kinds of dangerous positions, and they're fighting all the time. As they get better in psychology, and you help them less and less, and they don't want it anymore, and they find more peaceful ways of being in this lifetime. But imagine if you were doing it lifetime after lifetime, it would it would be different. Unless you came back to work on something in particular, you know that was difficult or something. But basically, the the arc is to move to more peaceful, joyful, ecstatic ways of being. And so you have heaven on earth, right? That kind of thing. Your kingdom of heaven is within you, and it manifests in your life, if that makes sense. It may seem paradoxical, but you transcend this unitive state, yeah? And you can do that in the body in, in this lifetime to a great extent. But through cycles, you do it more and more. I mean, some people don't believe in that. You don't have to. Just take it then as a metaphor if you don't want to believe in that. Yeah, that's fine. That is really fine. I think we yeah, I think we have yeah. one chance and that's it. But we all yeah. have different senses senses of that. Yeah. Yeah. So you'll do the best you can in this life. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's good. Okay. All right. Well, thanks everybody. And uh have a great week. Farida already had to run off. So uh, thank Joshua. Uh, Leah, Ben, Ben, and Carpet. Oh, if you, we have a book out. It's called Food for Thought, Psyche, Spirit, and Soul. Uh, and you can get it on Amazon, uh, Borders, all that kind of stuff. Not Borders, uh, the other one. 
anyway uh it's online you can you can find it also if you want a life coach to help you with some of these things your fulfillment your advancements your sense of resilience your advancement in your career uh any of these uh, young people can be of help and uh you know, just type in uh, transformation and transcendence life coaching transformation and transcendence life coaching they'll reach our coaching platform and take a look okay Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Bye-bye.